You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. This is Jerry Prokopovich. The real war, Walt Whitman said, will never get in the books. Perhaps not, but it may never have come closer than in the writing of two Union officers who wrote fictional and non-fictional accounts of their experiences, producing some of the best war writing in all American literature. Michael Schaefer has analyzed their work in his book, Just What War Is? The Civil War Writings of John W. DeForest and Ambrose Bierce. Join us today to find out just what war is on Civil War Talk Radio. Hi, Tom Bodette from Motel 6 with a word for business travelers. Seems business has its own language these days, full of buzzwords like buzzword or net-net. And after a day spent whiteboarding a matrix of action items and deliverables, it's nice to know you can always outsource your accommodation needs to the nearest Motel 6. You'll get a clean, comfortable room for the lowest price, net-net, of any national chain, plus data ports and free local calls. In case you tabled your discussion and need to reconvene offline. So you can think of Motel 6 as your total business travel solution provider, vis-a-vis cost-effective lodging alternatives for Q1 through Q4, I think. Just call 1-800-4-MOTEL-6 or visit motel6.com. I'm Tom Bodette for Motel 6, and we'll maintain the lighting device in its current state of illumination for you. Motel 6 and a core hotel. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from my office on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, where it is a gray and cloudy Friday afternoon this autumn day in 2006. It's Friday afternoon, the end of another week of educating America's youth, a week in which the Diet Coke supply ran out at the Prokopovich household on Tuesday. And in a scientific experiment, I chose not to replenish it, but to see if reducing caffeine would help increase the calm and serenity of my teaching and writing. Um, It has to the point that I am just about comatose now here on Friday afternoon, uh, eagerly looking forward to uh, massive caffeine doses to get through the weekend, but uh, also looking forward to our conversation this afternoon with our guest, which we'll get to in just a moment. Uh, Before doing that, the uh, obligatory legal disclaimer, nothing I say is endorsed or authorized by East Carolina University, although it ought to be, and similarly the guest and I each speak for ourselves uh, this week as every week, and also the lawyers say don't forget to remind people when you beg them for donations that the donations are not tax deductible, it's just supporting uh, an interesting program hopefully, but uh, not a charity. And with that behind us, let's move on to today's topic Uh, We're going to talk about Civil War literature today with our guest, Michael W. Schaefer. 
Dr. Schaefer, are you there? I am here, Jerry. How are you? Very good. Uh, may I call you Mike, although we have not met formally? Uh, please do. And, and uh, please call me Jerry. Don't, don't even try to pronounce it. Um, Prokopovich. Well done. I grew up in Chicago. Those kind of names are, you know, much more common than Smith and Jones in my part of town. Well, very good. I, I spent a number of years in Chicago, uh, a very good place. The old Ukrainian neighborhood now has become very hot, very yuppified. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. I, I know roughly the area you're talking about. Uh, so people are uh, they're moving in uh, around North Avenue, uh, that district. Um, now, you teach English at the University of Central Arkansas, according to your book, Dust Jacket. Uh, is that where you are now? Yeah, it is. And uh, we normally talk to authors uh, about the Civil War who are usually in history departments, but today we're, we're venturing uh, a little bit afield. Were you interested in the Civil War? Uh, have you been interested for a long time? What, what is the origin of your interest uh, uh, well, the origin, I'm one of those kids who was born in the 1950s and was just at the right age, about 10 years old, for the centennial of the Civil War. And I don't, I don't know if you're of that same generation or just not. Just about, yep. So you probably know what I'm talking about. It, was, it kind of saturated the culture there for a couple of years and really caught my attention, <clears throat> partly because my on my mother's side of the family, the – People were from Virginia, and they had direct connections with ancestors back who had served in the Civil War, and it just you know, it just captured my imagination, and sort of stayed in the back of my mind all the way through school. Though I have to say, I wasn't one of those kids who became a prodigy about the Civil War. I was just sort of interested in, interested in it in a little kid sort of way. I had the uh, the American Heritage Junior edition of the Civil War history. And so on, but you know, it kept my interest up. Well, that that I, I need to get a little sound effect that goes off when when a guest says something like to that effect, because it is astonishing how prevalent that is. Uh, the, the the Bruce Catton the either Junior Edition or the American Heritage Big Version. Yeah, it was the the Junior Edition that I had, it, which, which had so wonderful illustrations in it. Yeah, oh yeah, uh, I, I can recall getting that out of the library and just lying on my bed and looking at those pictures. Uh, it did have some of the maps, those bird's-eye maps. That mm-hmm. just yeah, I remember those very well. And, and there are so many of us who, who passed through that moment, and that book and uh, the, the, the other artifacts of the, the centennial just grabbed us and, uh, and brought us in. So uh, you were interested, but you ended up choosing to specialize in English as an academic discipline. Yeah. And, and uh, was, did this book come about uh, as a dissertation or as a, a project within? Uh... It did. It started out as my dissertation. Uh, I, I want to go back to Civil War literature from the 60s in a minute, but I'll, I'll carry this forward. Uh, I was... When I was in graduate school in the 1970s, John Keegan's book, The Face of Battle, had just come out and was, this, I think, came out in 76, if I'm remembering. I think that's right, yes. And kind of just by accident, one of the professors in the English department had a copy that I saw lying on his desk, and I kind of made a note of it because I'd always been interested in military history. 
and read that. You're familiar with that book? Oh, very, very much, yes. Yeah, I think everybody is. And I think most of our listeners will know it, That's kind of a seminal book in military history, as indeed are a lot of Keegan's later books as well, which I've read too and, and been very impressed by. But I, I, was, I had read that about the what exactly does military history, the, the, the effort to capture battle on paper, what exactly goes into that was the question that Keegan was examining in what I would say is a very kind of literary critical way, as well as in a historical way, you know, looking at the effect of language, what language reveals and what language doesn't reveal. And then when I was casting around for a dissertation topic, I don't remember any specific kind of aha moment, but it just came to me that as far as I knew, I had not seen any application of Keegan's work to to fiction and to, to fiction about war. And I was particularly interested in the Civil War, always had been. So I, I sort of gravitated in that direction. How did that go over with, uh, with the English department where you were in school? Uh, very well. Really? Yeah, uh, the, several of the American histori- uh, the American literature people there were also interested in American history. The, my dissertation director had actually been an editor of a collection of Civil War fiction and had also done some articles on Civil War literature. So he was he was very supportive of the idea. Uh, who was that? Uh, his name was was still is Richard Rust. Okay. Was a, a a wonderful guy and a wonderful director. He's retired now. Uh huh. So, uh, so the idea is here to to do a literary analysis of, of Civil War battle writing, the way Keegan does with uh, Waterloo and, and the Somme, and uh, uh, what was it? Was Agincourt? Was that the other battle? I think. Uh, in yeah, that one's in there. He he talks a lot about. Uh, Napier's writing about the about Wellington's Peninsula campaign, and I'm trying to think who else. That, that his discussion of Napier, uh, Keegan's discussions of Napier and Julius Caesar were the ones that I found most useful about how they the the approach that they take, where Napier takes a kind of approach of looking at it. However, with kind of Victorian high-flown rhetoric, but looking at it from the kind of soldier's point of view, that it's the, it's the guys in the ranks who win the battle versus Caesar's approach of suggesting largely that it's Caesar's presence on the battlefield that is the crucial factor. Well, you go into some detail on that here in your, your section on DeForest where you talk about how the uh, 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 these two writers – espouse these different views, uh, different different ideologies, you call them, of, of the battlefield, without ever explicitly saying so. But you point out, I thought it was quite interesting, how uh, uh, in Caesar's accounts of, of battles, he's the only individual. Mm-hmm. And uh, the men just do what what he influences them to do. And, yeah, the, and the, the, the men seem to have no individual will in Caesar's writing. Everybody, yeah, everybody acts uniformly in accord with with Caesar's will. Once Caesar is on the scene, and in contrast, Napier shows the British veterans uh, defeating the French attack uh, at, at battles in the Peninsular War. There, it's the the soldiers. Now, they're not so much individualized, but they're sort of collectively the brave British soldier. Yeah, who, who wins that battle? Yeah, the 
the, the influence of the commanders is downplayed, at least in, in Napier's accounts of specific battles. Now, these both appear, the, the, the comparison between these two, you bring up in your first chapter uh, on DeForest. And, uh, why don't we talk about him for the benefit of those listeners who have not read any of John William DeForest's Civil War writing. You, you, have, uh, you have an assignment ahead of you. Uh, but one that you will enjoy, which is to read A Volunteer's Adventures, his uh, oh, yeah, war I memoir. I think that, that both that and the novel that's, that fictionalizes some of DeForest's own experience that he talks about in A Volunteer's Adventures, the novel is Miss Ravenel's Conversion, are by, by Keegan's standards just wonderful pieces of, wonderfully realistic pieces of battle writing. Well, tell us something about DeForest. Who who was this guy? Sure, he was uh, he was born in 1826 to a New England family that was relatively prominent and and relatively wealthy, but not so wealthy that he didn't have to to depend on his writing for a living. And he'd been a writer for a number of years before the Civil War, 1826. He's 35 when the war breaks out. He already had five books of history and fiction and travel writing behind him before the war and he was was very much a believer in the abolitionist cause i mean he was a he wasn't one who like beers we might talk about that later seemed to join up as a lot of younger men did uh, what's the phrase to see the elephant you know not because they were so interested in preserving the union or freeing the slaves but because this was their chance to see a war i mean deforest was really ideologically ideologically committed to the preservation of the Union and the freeing of the slaves. So he joins, becomes an officer in the uh, 12th Connecticut, if I'm remembering correctly, and serves with distinction through 1864 when he's mustered out of the the regular army, the active army, because his health is broken. Uh, You and Eric Dean two weeks ago were talking about the, the wonderful interview, by the way, with with Dean. I, I'm very interested in his work. The you know the Great physical book. and mental toll that is taken on soldiers, and that seems to have happened to DeForest more physically than mentally. And so he he ends up later being in I guess we'd call it the reserves. He he becomes an officer in the Freedmen's Bureau in South Carolina in the Reconstruction. But he has several years of actual battlefield experience. And when he, you know, when he is finally mustered out, when he leaves the the Reconstruction Service, and you know, it should be said, he wanted actually to stay in the army. He was looking kind of for a military career as his uh, as his living. But you know, when the army is reduced after the war, that doesn't happen. So he once again becomes a full time writer, and he he as he's always been, or not always, it, there's a turn in his career, he becomes committed to the idea of realism in literature, which you know, I would link up with people like William Dean Howells and, and Samuel Clemens in the post-Civil War period, who are, their, their essential point about literature is that it's supposed to show real life to people and ideally remove them from the illusions that they may be living in. Uh, Several critics have said, you know, what the the thing that I that unifies the realistic movement in American literature is this idea that 
people are living in illusions, and it's our job as writers to remove those illusions from them, to make them see things truly. And DeForest takes it as his mission, particularly, to remove illusions about warfare for people who, who have never experienced it. Just for context, that sounds almost self-evident today, while well, a writer should describe life realistically, should, should tell the truth about things. Uh, what did the realist writers, you say they imagined people were living lives of illusion, so they believe that previous generations of authors had fostered these illusions? or Yeah, yeah, uh, particularly popular authors. Uh, William Dean Howells, who's kind of the, the leading critical voice in this period, as well as a, a leading American novelist and playwright, Frequently in his criticism, he goes out after popular authors who who present life as people would like it to be, rather than as it actually is. You know, kind of happily ever after stuff. I mean, how's and this is kind of a departure in this period. How says over and over again, the truth may not be pleasant. The truth may not be what you want to hear, and it may not be moral. This is a big issue, but. It is not going to corrupt the reader to read the truth. The only thing that's going to corrupt a reader is to get a false picture of life, because then the reader is going to come to grief in his or her own life. And this is the era when Horatio Alger is writing yeah. stories that that the realists would say are just this kind of corrupting... Yeah, yeah, Horatio Alger is a good example. One of Howells' novels, The Rise of Silas Lapham, kind of looks at the other side of Horatio Alger, where the, the central character uh, does the kind of Horatio Alger thing of rags to riches, and he, he's faced with a decision either to swindle somebody else or to lose his own fortune. And he decides to, you know, to do the honorable thing and not swindle somebody else and lose his own fortune. Now, you know, in a Horatio Alger story or, or a similar story like that, what would happen after well, he re- decides not to swindle the person? If you do the right thing, you're rewarded. Yeah, you should get your fortune back, right? Exactly. I mean, in, in The Rise of Silas Latham, that doesn't happen. The, you know, virtue becomes its own reward, that he, he is, is ruined in business, but he ends up, and I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but he ends up poorer but, but happier and wiser. And the the military analogy to this, uh, we'll talk about in a moment, are the writers who give a false view of what what war is like, just what war is. Right, exactly. Uh, They're the ones that DeForest is particularly taking out after. We're going to take a short break and come back and talk more about what DeForest thought war was and certainly get to Ambrose Bierce as well. Uh, We'll do that in just a few minutes. We'll take a short break here. This is Civil War Talk Radio. (laughs) 